Welcome to Open Sources Guelph here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. I'm Adam A. Donaldson of Guelph Politico, and joining me is... Scotty Hertz, and just to give people a, a heads up, any random coughing and throat clearing you hear is probably due to uh, the smoke that's in the air and, and not COVID, we believe, but... Mm-hmm. I was definitely out in the... I was like, what? Somebody's burning something. Oh, wait, it's it's the forests of northern Ontario. Like, good lord. Yeah, somebody's burning the planet. Mm-hmm. It's the fine people at ExxonMobil and BP. Oh, did I say that out loud? Ooh. Did better watch. <laughs> Mainstream media is keeping an eye on you, Donaldson. <laughs> uh, it's definitely not to poach me, that's for sure. Uh, <laughs> open Sources is CFRU's political and current affairs discussion show. And you can find us here every Thursday at 5 p.m. as we talk about the latest news items from Guelph, Ontario, Canada, and around the world. And we sometimes interview local newsmakers and politicians, which this week will be a real gold-level guest. We have Ontario's official opposition leader, Andrea Horvath, and she will be talking about the plan that she brought to the University of Guelph last week, the plan for uh, to expand electric vehicles on Ontario roads. And she's also going to talk about what the government should be doing right now to prevent a fourth wave of COVID. And that's going to be in the bottom half of the show. Before that, we're going to talk about the inner turmoil in the Green Party. Anime Paul seems safe, but for how long? And before that, we are going to kick off the show by talking about uh, how words can hurt. And uh, the new Indigenous minister in Manitoba learned that firsthand about 10 minutes into the job. Alan uh, Lagim Modrier, I think that's how you pronounce his name, uh, he got up in front of uh, the official opposition leader and the press and said that, uh, you know, residential schools were filled with some very fine people who didn't mean to hurt anyone. Actually, I do have his exact quote here, which is, uh, from my knowledge of it, the residential school system was designed to take Indigenous children and give them the skills and abilities they would need to uh, fit into society as they move forward, which is kind of like how you sell DeVry University, but uh, <laughs> not really how you sell residential schools in the 21st century. No, you can't actually sell residential schools in 21st century or any century for that matter. But yeah, it's, it's all... Um, poorly played although this is it was a bit of a reminder because the whole the, the part i saw of it i saw a little bit of an extended cut but it was it was uh, the whole thing took place in under two minutes mm. it's kind of a reminder of how rare the unscripted is now in politics you don't and i think that's why it made well it made the news for other reasons obviously but it made the rounds because you just you just don't see that now it's somebody's guard is down and somebody pounces and it's not within the framework of parliament right it, it's this like it's like true uh, trudeau the elders just watch me moment right it was like mm-hmm. no this it, it was and that was that was quite incredible in itself not necessarily what canoe said but he was right um but yeah like you say he's just he just just sworn in and then it's wham you get this and then I think it got to the point where other indigenous organizations were saying, uh, you, sh- you should resign. Mm. <laughs> it's gone from there. But also, interestingly, I heard on Tuesday that two economic 
uh, board advisors, both indigenous men who were on committees for, I think it was economic development of some kind in Manitoba. So this is like a, a larger group, an unelected body, but appointed. They've resigned their positions over this. Not just mm-hmm. not just this moment, but the prior moment too, where uh, Brian Palliser was talking his his comments, which prompt which initially prompted this whole thing, uh, would have been around Canada Day when the Queen the Queens, as I think the BBC said, <laughs> the Queens, Victoria and Elizabeth, because there's only two, were pulled down, and his you know his comments were um, not really on point, but he doubled down. Mm-hmm. What did he say? People can. People came Ooh, here to yes, build Canada, that, yeah. not destroy, and uh, you know, forgetting and omitting yes. the whole, wholesale destruction of indigenous communities, uh, their lifestyle, the people. You know, so he he doubled down. He and, and in doing that, it was the uh, Eileen Clark, the previous indigenous and northern relations minister, that stepped down, mm-hmm. which led to Lagamondier being appointed so it's this chain reaction that started with comments i guess it would have been on or around canada day mm-hmm. um, which was when the statues were pulled down and it's just this chain reaction of resignations <laughs> three right. so it's, far but <laughs> he yeah pallister said that people came to canada to build communities churches and businesses um they didn't come here to destroy i mean unless uh, you know, you're with an indigenous community and, uh, you know, a lot of your stuff was destroyed, your language, your culture, your religion, your system of government, uh, your individual rights. Uh, yeah, it's just, and some of this stuff is like so avoidable because, you know, when, uh, like a near, um, what is, you know, his comments reminded me of like Aaron O'Toole when he, he said mm-hmm. last fall that you know um oh i wrote that down too somewhere but but you know, it was basically the same gist like you know yeah. residential schools weren't set up to like torture people they were there to promote yeah to promote education and and it's like it doesn't matter what they were there to do i mean um and that was to a group of <laughs> university students right yeah at ryerson um <laughs> you mean x university yeah of yeah, all the places yeah exactly so it, it's just uh, when when it falls on deaf ears like that, it doesn't matter what the residential schools intended to do or what people intended to do with residential schools. Um, I mean, because the, the point was, as you know, a number of indigenous activists said, is like basically to kill the Indian and kids, and you know, put a white person in their place. Um, that alone is kind of graphic when you kind of phrase it that way. But I mean, so without the torture and without like the mysterious deaths and the priests raping people, uh, raping kids and then, you know, burying them in unmarked graves or, you know, make taking the grave markers away when the, the residential school closed in, you know, one case, what, 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 you know, even the intended outcome was just purely racist and built on this fallacy going back, you know, hundreds of years that, uh, indigenous people in North America were savages that had to be civilized and colonialized. Um, it, you know, it, it doesn't matter that they wanted to do it, quote unquote, the right way, because there was really no right way to do it. And it just falls on such deaf ears. And to, to go back to Pallister's thing again, like, oh, people just came here to build churches and communities. Um, it reminded me of, you know, what Rick Santorum said earlier. This year. I got finally kicked off CNN where he, you know, he gets up in front of a young conservative group and talks about how, you know, America was just this, 
big open space where, you know, everyone could come and chill out and do what they want and embrace freedom and stuff. Forgetting the fact that there were people already here living a pretty good life that, you know, uh, quickly lost their land, their culture, their history, their bent, their um, traditions, on and on and on and on. It's just... Oh, but Whitey made it better, though, right? Today? But, I mean, there are just ways... Like, these are not new mistakes. These are old mistakes that, you know, these guys should have learned from. And, you know, to add insult to injury, um, (laughs) Lycan Modier is um, Métis. So, you know, it's... I, I guess the system worked in his case, but it... It, it's not great, in other words. F- found the right patsy, right? Yeah. <laughs> Somebody's going to be an apologist. And the, 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 that's the thing, is that you, there, there, is, there is no squaring this. You can try all of the roots you like, that you don't like. The, the violence, which is against statues, it's impossible to be violent against a statue. It's, to me, in my world, you, you can't be violent towards inanimate things, right? Maybe yeah. the, the intention is, to, you know, to express a kind of well, we're gonna take the statue's head off and throw it in the in the river as they did with Queen Vic, or take it down to the uh, to Lambac Lane. But that's in the scheme of things, it's it's minor. It's you're making a statement, but it's not like the the problem with the Pallisers of the world and Jason Kenney's and O'Toole. Funny that am I naming all conservative people? Well, they're the ones that seem to have the biggest problem with this and and keep trying to um fit a narrative in that's that's a dead narrative right Mm -hmm. we know residential schools were bad we know queen victoria was directly involved in the creation of what we know is like you know connect the dots ryerson dundas right Mm -hmm. and if the time has come which it has for these things to change for the narrative to change and for um Let's say it's you're not really correcting history, more like telling truth telling in mm-hmm. history, right? Mm-hmm. Which is which is something else that certain sectors are getting upset about, right? In terms of the way um, history is being presented, it's not being misrepresented. It's just a different narrative is being told now that was suppressed for years. A narrative involving finding bodies and you know the dark side, right? Because mm-hmm. everybody around Canada Day and whatnot wants the nation to be all kumbaya, and it's it's becoming clear that it's not that clear. And that's that's probably what was has been the most interesting about this year in terms of Canada Day is that the um, even the ability to question it is out there now, right? Mm-hmm. It, 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 for the longest time, it was just, you're just going to accept these things without question, and this is how it's going to be. It's like no, not th- not this year. And probably not next year and for the years to come. So, you know, the adjustment is on. And all all of these incidences, uh, small, large, are, are a part of that, right? Yeah, I mean, that was really kind of incredible this year that we had a Canada Day where, uh, I mean, it wasn't universal by any stretch, but, you know, that... There were a lot of governments, a lot of towns. Um, I mean, and mo- big parts of this was because of the pandemic, of course. But um, that there was a lot of leeway to, like, kind of saying, "Stop." You know, what does what does all this mean? What about the negative parts of our history? You know, how do we contextualize all this? Um, 
you know, and, and there's a lot of work to do on on that account too. Yeah. Um, there, for a lot of people, like particularly people who've come to Canada in the last, you know, let's say a hundred years, um, there was this feeling that Canada was a great place to be, made people want to come here, people who were fleeing persecution, um, people who were looking for new opportunity, people looking to, you know, for the freedom to fit in. And we have to understand how that Canada reconciles with the one um, where we, you know, rounded up indigenous children and allowed their systematic abuse, torture, and oh, sometimes yeah. death. Um, but none of that, like, begins with, <laughs> with you know, residential schools, guys. I mean, they, they just wanted to educate the kids. It's, you know, it's like, we're sorry. I mean, and part of the problem, too, is that, you know, once you kind of get past the real um, rebellion, you know, indigenous people kind of don't play any part in Canada anymore. Uh, you know, Cartier gets here finds um indigenous people you know sometimes we're friends sometimes we're enemies sometimes we steal their stuff sometimes we quote-unquote give them fair trade and uh sometimes you know you give them the haldeman tract <laughs> yeah right. yeah and then sometimes we team up to fight the british and then sometimes we lose and then sometimes the british move into North America, into Canada, and we team up with them to keep the Americans out. And, you know, and then, you know, the indigenous just, you know, became part of the great Canadian melting pot, and we never worried about them again. Uh, it's it's just, it's a little too convenient, and I think th there's a piece of this that starts with education, but of course that's going to be um, another minefield, because, I mean, what did Aaron O'Toole run on? Schools are too liberal. There's not enough free speech. There's stifling conservative voices, conservative censorship. And it's like too this many radical lefties at the university on the radio, right? Is that <laughs> <laughs> right? And that, and this is going to fall right into into that and right into that theme. And, you know, in an election, Aaron O'Toole is going to try to stifle some of those voices. But um, we, we've kind of already hit a wall with, you know, when we're talking about Pallister, when we're talking about Kenny, when we're talking about O'Toole. Um, it's, you know, clearly there's still a lot of work to do on, on this account. And the other thing I'll say yeah. about, you know, I think Queen Victoria is probably not, if she were still around, uh, she wouldn't care much about what happened to her statue. I mean, that was a woman people actually tried to kill. Like, they didn't just mm -hmm. try to get, get rid of her statues. Like, people actually tried to kill her. So, I mean, in that context, whatever. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. And that's, yeah. Can't. For everything you said there about people coming here, as my people did, right, it is a good place, but that's not to say that we are immune from self-examination and needing to make what a lot of people consider to be a good place a better place, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's what needs to happen. Yes. Um, what also needs to happen is uh, maybe people need to get off enemy Paul's case. Oh, boy. Because uh, that seems to... You know, it's interesting when we talked about this a few weeks ago, there was kind of definitely a feeling that maybe she had stepped wrong. But I think in the last few weeks, we've also seen that there is kind of a systemic campaign, if not to, like, force her out to make her her um, her leadership miserable. Although that may be on hold because uh, on the weekend it was reported that um, the non-confidence motion, excuse me, the non-confidence vote that was supposed to come up, was uh, canceled. Um, they are also canceling this <laughs> this odious review of her membership status that was being talked about, as well as 
uh, leadership review, all that is on hold until after the next election. And enemy Paul has, um, I think, uh, bravely called for unity and uh, moving forward together. The question is, like, has the damage been done? Like the the, the shiny happy green party is is that you know uh, an illusion that can't be reestablished going into what's going to be a probably a very uh, down and dirty election season. It would seem that way, and I think a lot of and it's again this is speculation because we don't know for sure what shut the process down. There's two things mm-hmm. happening. It sounds like they're <clears throat> and they have a very interesting setup. This this the council or committee. Um, is is going to have an election. The Central Council is going to have an election, and they're going to have new members by the middle of August, which may or may not, we're still not certain as to when the election is going to be. It's coming for sure. Worst mm-hmm. kept secret that it is coming. And I wonder if that's what's happened, because it sounds like after the election, there's there's a, it triggers a leadership review anyway. So maybe the, maybe the rebels, as we'll call them, have, have said, oh, no, maybe we'll just wait for that. I don't know, because it, it all, there was the weird, and you saw it too, Adam, probably, and I, it was mostly the star, where there was a little tidbit every day, right? It was like, and there's a leak. And this this is the problem of the the optics of the thing, is that there's this whisper campaign going on that somebody is is just dribbling out information. It's like, and you know what? And she asked for this money, and then there's no money for the riding. And then there's Zatzman. There was all these little bits and pieces sort of trickling out. And now all of that has stopped. Mm-hmm. And that's the main thing with the optics is that, you know, you need you need Malcolm to sweep, sweep in and go like, this is a lockdown, right? There's no, <laughs> you need that person. <laughs> to do, and I didn't use the language, but you know what I'm saying, though. You need, you need. You need to plug the leaks as soon as they happen. And I think structurally, just because of the way the Greens, and I could be wrong here, but I don't think so. The way they're designed is there is this kind of openness. Mm-hmm. But it's not really being open if you're if you're going to uh, a mainstream paper and saying, you know, you know, it's gonna happen in a day or two. So they had a they had a connect and on the condition of anonymity, they were speaking to this. Yeah. So there is there's this there's, there's truth to the whole you know they are after anime Paul, mm-hmm. but then there's there are other elements to it as well. It was pointed out at her presser, was that that was on Monday, right? Mm. Was that there there didn't I'm I didn't I didn't see it. There didn't there wasn't any comment from the sitting MPs mm-hmm. in any. There were, I didn't see a press release, a Twitter, a tweet. Well, May May released a statement of support. She did, but Manly didn't. So again, you can divine whatever you want from that. Just just to interpret where that's going and then of course there is the the, the lost mp mm-hmm. who who plays into this as well there are so um many factors to this and also this past week i was sent a not a press release but a link to something called greenleft.ca mm-hmm. uh, who are there are people within that group i guess were sort of prompted some of what is going on as well they i i'm not sure whether that the release of this greenleft.ca coincided with everything that was going on. Maybe they were anticipating the fall of Anime Paul and they were going to pick up the pieces. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It just seems like a hell of a coincidence that that would come out um, at the same time. It's possible that they've been working on that for a while. They're kind of like the, if people know they're like the, the equivalent would be like the NDP Socialist Caucus, I guess. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, they're entryist and sort of want to yank the Greens to the left. And the, well, um, Dimitri Lascaris, who was second in the leadership race, is involved with, with them, right? So Close second, there's, yeah. the dynamics are wild, absolutely wild to this. And it's only wild because we're seeing it, right? Mm-hmm. Normally, this uh, stuff just goes on, you know, behind the scenes. But this was all, we are going to hang out the dirty laundry and you're all going to look at it, right? Well, it would be behind the scenes if it wasn't for party operatives who were kind of leaking all this, as you said. And I appreciate the um, <laughs> the the Malcolm Tucker reference because uh, yeah. that is one of my favorite bits. Uh, it's too bad we can't play the the bit about the Shawshank Redemption because that's particularly <laughs> pointed. Oh, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, the language wouldn't pass CRTC standards. No. Um, yeah, the. I think what the problem is that this, whatever there are disagreements of policy, and this has been something that has been around the Green Party for a while. This, you know, question of um, how I can't remember the acronym, but you know, blocked uh, the you know kind of blockade of of Israel and and that kind of thing. Uh, the BDSM, not the BDSM yeah. movement, but yeah. The, um, yeah. Boycott divestment sanctions and calling Israel an apartheid state and right. is yeah. that actually anti-Semitic? Right. And that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> that stuff's been like hanging like an albatross around the neck of the Green Party for a while, and it just kind of erupted. And not the least of which is because Annamie Paul herself is Jewish. There's something kind of like rovian about this and by rovian i mean like carl rove like like just straight up dirty trick squad like especially the bit about about membership because if the the confidential sources are to be believed she was going to enemy paul i mean was going to survive a confidence motion Mm -hmm. um i mean and much of that is like that there's a very high bar it's like you have to get 75 percent to like approve like, it's like a, a super uh, super majority. Yeah. It's a yeah, it's a super super majority. <laughs> but <laughs> I mean, super, yeah. the, the the fact that somebody's working on the side angle, I know, will revoke her membership because the leader has to be a member in good standing. That just that there's something like very kind of like sneaky sneaky, um, you know, <laughs> using the letter of the law to defeat the spirit of the law, which you know just seems like come right out of the Karl Rove school. That I think adds an, another level of kind of mal- malevolenceness to mm-hmm. this. And, and and it's not to say that Annamie Paul was guiltless um, and that, you know, and that, and that's not to say that none of this is kind of like the usual politics of, you know, a leader trying to find their footing. And so, because we've certainly seen this on the conservative side with Aaron O'Toole, he's, you know, there've been a lot of stories about him not having the confidence of his caucus and him mm-hmm. stepping along with things like, this climate change declaration at the policy convention and all that, but it 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 is. We would be foolish to ignore how this is amplified because we are talking about a federal leader who is black and who is a woman, and there there's I, I think we can definitely say that there is a piece of this whatever legitimacy whatever legitimate gripes people may have had mm-hmm. with enemy Paul's leadership style and her 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 policy directions, there is an element here. There's absolutely an element here, and I think just the way people behind the scenes have been going at her um, is kind of proof of that. Yeah, and there's there's still even with that. What did she say at the press conference on Monday, or it came out of that on Monday that she still doesn't have any staff? Yeah, 
So there's a, mean, there's an election coming up. She's going to run in, in a riding, and I hate to say this, because that's writing on the wall stuff that she's probably not going to win. Yeah, that writing is money too. That you can't be in that situation without money. That that is writing exactly. Is yeah. That that's that is part of what it requires if you are to you know to go over the top with with mm-hmm. that. Um. So there there there's all of these factors. If that's where she's decided to run, then then fine. That needs to be accepted. Seems determined to run there. Traditionally, it would be the the former leader. Or whoever steps aside, uh, I'm not. Is Elizabeth May running again? I don't believe so. Right. So a lot of the implication that's gone on is that well, Elizabeth May still has lots of control within the party, and that's. I to, believe it's to, her, if I remember correctly, it's her intention to retire completely, which is why she stepped down as leader. Yeah, I. I she may retire completely, but you're never you're 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 always emeritus, right? You're <laughs> you'll <laughs> always be a, a presence because it's uh, she, she pretty much built it to the point that it is now, and I think it's it it may be difficult to let your project go when you built it from what it was, which was just which for was sure. vir- I would say virtually nothing, but enough that it's greens have a presence now. We t- there's people talk about them every day these days, yeah, right? The so rather yeah. than um, back the mo- the- yeah, the money is the big problem because I mean it wasn't just cutting her office. Um, it like they let go half the staff, and it was like fifteen members. So I mean, it doesn't yeah. sound that bad, but I mean, when you're in, heading into election, I think the more da- like and that led to blood- the muting of the mic, right? The, the right. when yeah. the leader is complaining about something, right, rightly so. The laying off of staff, and it's like, okay, be quiet. That's like Ooh. right, which is another another sign that like the, the 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 dynamics in the party go deeper than she stepped wrong. People clearly don't like her, her her style and her approach that they're muting her in the middle of a meeting. But I mean, I think the money th- like bad blood you can sort of paper over, you can or you can let it scab over and uh, you know try and move on in the interest of the party. But I mean. Money is the thing, and I, people don't like to think about politics this way, but, I mean, you need the money. And when you're cutting staff literally weeks before a probable election call, mm-hmm. uh, well, like, that, like the, just the messaging of that isn't good. It's like, oh, we're going into an, a national election, and we can't even have, like, a full-time staff. We have to cut half our staff. That is such a like a red flag and uh not like in terms of like your your money management because you know everybody has problems but at at the same time it's just you don't want to be going into election uh cash poor and that seems to be the the unintended message of that is that there seems to be um some deeper problems in the party that uh go well beyond enemy paul Mm -hmm. when there was a bit of a communication problem too because i saw one tweet from a member that Mm -hmm. had emails side by side and one was it one was well we're really we're in really great shape and then the second one which was supposedly a day later was please give us money we don't have any money like so there's a there's a communication problem as well yes uh and we'll have to leave that there uh, we're gonna have to do a deep dive into some commercials um well we don't we're, we do that at the end of the show. You can come up with some. You can make some. Uh, no, we're going to do deep dive into some music instead. <laughs> oh, boy. I'd love to be back in the studio. We're listening to Open Sources Guelph here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. 
Tonight I'm fighting long to meet the dark red edge of dawn I know somebody will be crying and somebody will be gone Oh, Tokyo And that was our Royal Cat Records pick of the week. Royal Cat Records at 21 McDonnell, the little big record shop in the downtown. And there's a song that's definitely on vinyl because I had it at one point in time. A roommate <laughs> left it behind. That was Tokyo by Bruce Coburn, which is, uh, if you were listening, is about a car accident, uh, which sadly the Olympics seems to be so far a little bit of a an accident waiting to happen is it an accident or is it like a chernobyl it's 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 well yeah that's good was chernobyl an accident was fukushima an accident yeah like people knew there were problems they knew it could have blown up at any time but they still proceeded Mm -hmm. um so it's yeah it it does not look great over in japan i mean sadly because i know the olympics mean a lot to people yeah hopefully they can keep things under control but it does yeah you Not get to go to Tokyo, but you can't leave your room and you can't go see the sights. And then it's like, okay, you're done. Go home. Also, no casual sex because they've had to set up cardboard the beds. Cardboard beds. <laughs> to display like, the casual sex that happens in the Olympic Village. I, I wonder oh, if man. Ikea are going to start selling these cardboard beds. I bet they are. Oh, Maybe my they do already. I do. <laughs> it's possible. <laughs> it's it's as fully oh. recyclable. Yeah. It's, I mean... Talk about another English sitcom about like boxes and paper factories. (laughs) Um, We're going to throw it to this interview that we did with Andrea Horvath, who you may know from the Ontario legislature, where she is the leader of the NDP, as well as the official opposition leader. And uh, it was really neat to get to talk to her one on one. And uh, she mentions some stuff about. Uh, electric vehicles, which she announced in Guelph last week, and there's a ton of COVID stuff if you're not sick of that yet, and why the Ford government might still fail us yet on that account. So why don't we throw it to our interview with Andrea Horvath uh, right now. So Andrea Horvath, thank you so much for joining me today. Absolutely. My pleasure, Adam. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, To start with the announcement you made at the U of G this morning, I, I think to come at it from a sort of a philosophical point of view, because I, I think a lot of people appreciate that the world is going towards electronic uh, electric vehicles. Uh, there are some environmental activists, though, who are saying, like, we're just replacing one car with another. So can, can you talk a bit about maybe the the broader picture and how we can use EV as, you know, maybe a stepping stone to, to getting more transit or just, you know, I guess better, better commutes in, in the future? No, there's, there's no doubt about it, Adam, and those folks have a good point. There's, uh, uh, there's certainly concern there, uh, and, and that's why our plan deals with both. It deals with not only electric personal vehicles, uh, but also electrifying of transit systems. Uh, and then we know municipalities don't have the financial capacity uh, to, um, you know, to, to provide that uh, extensive capital required to uh, transform their fleets, uh, and so our commitment includes exactly that. Uh, so what we're hoping is for uh, electric uh, vehicle use um, across the gamut, right? So for personal automobiles, as well as for public transit, uh, as well as electrifying uh, the uh, uh, the GO system, for example, we, we have the, the, the train, the, the uh, 
a train that goes to the airport from downtown Toronto that for some reason wasn't electrified when the Liberals put it in place, the Up Express, that needs to be electrified. So there's a lot of work to do. Uh, and it will significantly reduce greenhouse gas emissions and get those uh, uh, combustion engines, um, you know, uh, you know, out of the mix when it comes to uh, emissions. Can we move that fast, though? Uh, you know, to, to get at what you're saying is like we have two way all day go um, out to where I live here in Guelph. There's, um, you know, updates to various transit systems in Toronto, you know, big gaps in regional transit. And then there's all these little updates you're talking about electrifying municipal fleets. Um, that's a lot of money, a lot of work that has to be done really, really fast is, you know, are you concerned about, you know, how how quickly all this has to get done or how quickly you want yeah. to get it all done? <laughs> well, I mean, I think the point is that time is running out. I think when you look at what's happening, uh, you know, around the world, what's happening right here in Canada, what's happening right here in Ontario, uh, the wildfires, the flooding, uh, the soaring temperatures. We really, we don't have the luxury of time. Uh, that's why we call it a climate emergency. Uh, and, uh, and, we, and we need to take that seriously. And so, uh, as you know, this announcement today uh, was one part of a larger plan. Our larger plan proudly uh, makes a commitment of $40 billion uh, in the first, uh, our first term. And that's because we need to, uh, we need to do a lot of heavy lifting uh, to turn things around. And, uh, and, and we're making that commitment because we know our kids deserve to have hope for the future, our kids and our grandkids, you know, are, are, they deserve to be able to live uh, with a secure future uh, in terms of, uh, you know, in terms of the earth not burning up underneath their feet, literally. Uh, we need to make sure that they have the, the lakes and the forests and the clean air to breathe and, and to raise their families. And so uh, we're taking this very seriously because I think a heck of a lot of, of uh, folks uh, in our province, uh, in our country and around the world want us to and need us to. I wanted to address something very specifically in terms of like like an immediate solution that's needed. And I know you know that Greyhound has pulled out of Canadian operations uh, completely now. If I want to get from where I am in Guelph to like you're riding in Hamilton on public transit, like directly, that's just not an option. Um, what like do you have any ideas in terms of like what we can do in the meantime as we sort of look at this more holistic approach to, to regional transit but you know just in terms of like getting a, a bus that can take me from yeah. Guelph to Hamilton or Guelph to even you know Cambridge you know that, that, yeah, that's yeah there's a lot of work to be done there in the meantime. Oh, absolutely. And I think we need to look at our GO system to fill in some of those uh, those gaps that the withdrawal of Greyhound has uh, has created. I mean, uh, my, my brother many years ago uh, was uh, was dating someone who he ended up marrying that uh, was uh, was a Guelph, a Guelphite, right? I mean, she was a woman that had uh, gotten a couple of degrees at the university uh, and he was, he took the bus, the bus often, uh, the yeah. Greyhound often from Hamilton to Guelph and back from Guelph to Hamilton. Uh, and so uh, I, I was talking today to the president of Guelph university and she identified as well, exactly what you're identifying around the gaps that have been left with the withdrawal uh, from Greyhound and how that's going to affect, affect uh, university students coming from uh, all kinds of different places to, to attend classes at, uh, at the university. So absolutely, uh, we need to uh, work hard to encourage the government uh, to, um, you know, to expand GO service to, to fill some of, those, uh, uh, some of those gaps that have been left. Mm -hmm. I want to pivot a bit to sort of where we are right now with the pandemic. Um, you know, you're looking towards the future, you know, some of your 
political rivals and the leaders of the other parties are looking towards the future. But in terms of like how we balance in the immediate term, like where we are in the pandemic, they're presumably we're like near the end of, of it. We're reopening. People are getting vaccinated. Um, how how are you able to balance sort of the, the immediate priorities of like getting over the last hump of the pandemic and like who knows what might happen with fourth or fifth waves even. But, you know, how do we how, how are you balancing those immediate concerns with sort of more longish term concerns like we're talking about with electrifying transit and things like that? Well, that's a really great question. And I think uh, for me, it's about, um, you know, keeping our eye on the ball when it comes to the vaccination uh, strategies, uh, you know, the last mile, if you will, uh, strategies to get us through this last uh, little while and make sure we don't have a surge, uh, make sure that we can open, um, you know, schools for in-person learning uh, in the fall, uh, you know, not only post-secondary, but also, uh, as you know, the the elementary and secondary panels have uh, you know, have been hit pretty hard and, and young people and children are, are significantly affected. And so we are, uh, you know, keeping our eye on those pieces. Uh, but I think the other thing that we're seeing is the necessity to, uh, you know, to really uh, look to what the the rebuilding, if you will, of our economy and of our uh, of our province looks like uh, post-COVID. And, and this is exactly the time uh, to start to uh, uh, these kinds of initiatives, these kinds of initiatives that address not only uh, the need to get people back to work, uh, but to create uh, to create those opportunities uh, in with focusing on a green future. And so I, I think it uh, it actually uh, is is quite an integrated uh, um, you know approach, and we need to think about it that way. Our plan, uh, just on the announcement I made yesterday with the um, with the retrofit program uh, is 100,000 jobs, uh, you know, in the in the first uh, uh, the first term, which is amazing. And it's all kinds of different jobs. It's not just uh, it is it, it is the trades, which is extremely important and very good, well paid jobs. There's also uh, the training up of that workforce, and so there's education jobs, and then there's also the management of all of the the various projects. And so there's you know project managers and accountants and other professionals that'll be employed as well uh, with the electric vehicles. I mean, there's real concerns that we need to keep an eye on around a just transition uh, to the green economy. And so, you know, how do these uh, investments impact working people? Uh, how do they impact uh, the supply chain? I mean, these are things that we're, we're grappling with right now. Um, and they're important questions that we need to uh, respond to, definitely. And I think they're, you know, for Ontarians and political observers like me, we're seeing a kind of difference in approach. You are out there talking about, you know, stimulus for small businesses, helping businesses reopen. It seems like the government is taking a more laissez-faire kind of relaxed approach to um, to the economic reopening. I guess just assuming that once everything is reopened, things will bounce back and, and come back to normal as it were always were. I mean, I guess, is there a way to sort of reconcile these differences um, in, in the minds of Ontarians? Like, are, are, are you working too hard to get the supports or is the government maybe too relaxed in terms of thinking the economy is going to bounce back? I mean, where's kind of the reality here? Well, I think uh, I think when when it, when I look at what's happened here in Ontario, for me, it's all about people and it's all about communities. And so uh, we look at uh, entrepreneurs and small business peoples, the people whose dreams have been shattered, uh, who are who are having to walk away uh, from uh, 
from from the dream that they were building. Uh, and that's something that's tragic. And that impacts not only those entrepreneurs, not only those small business people, uh, and not only the main streets and the, uh, you know, the economic viability of, of, uh, of downtowns, for example, and you know, I'm, I'm uh, pretty passionate about those kinds of pieces. But it I mean, but it also means workers, you know, um, many small businesses employ, uh, employ people. And so those workers jobs are also um, you know, at risk. And so this is why we have been urging the government since last year, since April, uh, to put together a strong uh, plan to support small business, because uh, yes, you know, eventually uh, things will build back, but but let's have respect for what uh, what some in some cases generations of families have already built in our communities, and I think that's the difference. Uh, we really see the opportunity here to um, you know to provide supports to those businesses, uh, not only to help them uh, you know reopen and stay open, as we say, uh, but but also to um, you know to make sure that the recovery is that much quicker. Uh, we know that even to this day, tomorrow is the, we're, we're having this conversation on Thursday, Friday right. is the opening, uh, the, the next, the phase, the stage three. Uh, but we also know that many businesses are still going to be restricted in terms of their uh, customers and clients. And, uh, and uh, it's not going to be full steam ahead. Uh, and so I think it's important that we acknowledge that any supports we can provide, we should be providing. I mean, this is something that small businesses have asked for, by the way, as something that uh, Chambers of Commerce have been advocating for, something that the Canadian Federation of Independent Business has been asking for. We've seen other provinces uh, actually step up to the plate in that regard. We've seen other provinces protect their small business communities by, uh, you know, in terms of how they've managed the COVID-19 uh, pandemic in their in their provinces. Uh, you know, that didn't happen here in Ontario. And uh, and the impact, um, you know, economically, but also on communities and on families and on workers has been significant. Well, I've seen it observed, um, so I won't take credit for the idea, but, that, you know, there's no kind of stage four, right? The stage three is kind of the end of it, and we kind of run out of the government plan. And though, as you're saying, there's still a lot of runway to go in terms of getting back to quote unquote normal, getting back, opening into stage three is not the beginning of, of getting back to normal. No, absolutely. And, and all along, there's been um, concern by many that, um, you know, the government hasn't provided a clear, uh, a clear process from start to finish. Now I get it. Uh, you know, it's not easy. And there's there's lots of moving parts, uh, you know, but for, through the first stage, the second stage, or for, through the first uh, wave, the second wave, uh, and then Doug Ford walking us into the third wave, uh, and that being so devastating for, for our province, um, all along the idea has been uh, that uh, particularly the business community they need some certainty they need some they need some advance understanding of what's coming next so that they can plan for it uh, so that they can you know hire the staff or so that they can rearrange their physical space and uh, and they and they have not had that uh, from the government some are saying that this last uh, this last, uh, you know, step that we're taking now came with a bit more warning, and they were grateful for that. Uh, but it's been a it's been a long haul, and uh, and there's still there's still a ways to go. Granted, you've never formed a government, but I, I you know, you've been doing this for a while. So, like, what have you learned about governance through through the pandemic? You know, how, I mean, how would this had been different. I guess, how do, how do we approach the next crisis? What lessons have you learned in terms of how we might deal with like the next crisis, whatever that is? 
Uh, well, what I've what I've learned is, um, and it's something that I think uh, it, not only from what's happened here in Ontario, uh, but how other provinces, if we keep it with the Canadian context, and of course there's a global context as well, but uh, but just keeping it closer to home, um, you know how how various provinces have uh, you know have managed things and. You know, I, I really think it's it's got to be about people and impacts on people. Uh, it's got to be about, uh, you know, listening. Uh, it's, it, it should never be about, um, you know, about lobbyists and insiders. Uh, unfortunately, here in Ontario, many decisions, what we're seeing now in terms of information that's coming out, many decisions that uh, Doug Ford has made were based on uh, the pressure from, you know, conservative connected lobbyists is what to, is in the papers today. Right. And, and that's shameful. That's not what people want from their government. Uh, they want a government that's, um, uh, you know, that's in it for everyone and that's, that's listening uh, and that's responding to the needs of people. Uh, not to, um, you know, not to the friends of the uh, premier uh, at the helm. Uh, that's, uh, that's a real disservice to Ontarians. And I think some of, uh, some of what we've seen already, and this is why we're calling still for a full public inquiry into the way that Ontario dealt with the pandemic, uh, is because we deserve not only to know how those decisions were being made, but how to make sure that we do better next time. And, um, and, and that's something I think that's imperative. Right. And it strikes me, though, that if a crisis like COVID, I mean, lobbyists are always kind of involved with any decision, like kind of no matter who the government is. But, you know, if a crisis like COVID can't rearrange the, the priority of politics, to sort of maybe cut out the lobbyists a little bit more, uh, you know, what does kind of change the system? Like what really kind of creates more of that people centric approach that you're talking about? You know, I, I think I think that you know, we can have governments that are focused on people and the best interests of people, the best interests of communities, uh, the, the best interests of hardworking uh, families, hardworking folks, uh, hardworking, uh, you know, businesses. Uh, it doesn't have to be about uh, insiders and influence peddlers. Uh, it doesn't have to be about rewarding uh, political friends. Uh, and, and I think that it's been too long in Ontario uh, that we that we've you know had that kind of a government. We saw the Liberals fall into that uh, certainly, which is what part of the reason people became so disappointed with them in the last uh, while before the election. And, and we see Doug Ford, you know. Uh, take up that uh, that mantle and continue uh, with that kind of behavior. And it's just, um, you know, it's, it's, people deserve better than that. Uh, they deserve a, a government that puts, uh, you know, puts their interests and, and real positive uh, hope uh, and attention to the future uh, as a priority. And that's, that's what we're, we're focused on. So that's why we started already with these uh, platform planks. We've talked about the environmental plank a little bit uh, with our Green New Democratic deal, the job for, or rather the plan for uh, climate justice and jobs. And we put out a housing plan uh, a while back in November. In fact, we put out a, a plan for long-term care reform, getting the profits out once and for all at a long-term care and home care. We put that out back in October of last year. Uh, why? Because we think Ontarians deserve to know that there's hope, that there's hope that we can actually tackle uh, some of these uh, systems that I think COVID in some ways has really shown, uh, you know, that we have to address. I like to do this thing where I like to use my magic wand and make people the the head of the government or the premier of the government. And, and I just want to imagine for a sec I can use my magic wand and make you the premier of Ontario starting tomorrow and the NDP, the government, what are, what it's like kind of the immediate short-term plans you put into effect to make sure that we don't hit a, a wall 
in in September that there's no fourth wave that kids are back in school everybody's healthy things are getting better yeah. what does Premier Andrea Horvath do uh, well, some of the things I've already been encouraging uh, Premier Ford to do. So uh, when it comes to the situation we have with vaccines, there are still people uh, who have not um, had access to vaccines. Uh, there are still barriers to, to, uh, to getting vaccinated. Uh, we need to address that. Uh, we can't just, you know, do what we did last summer and just assume schools are going to open safely without a plan. Uh, and so we'd be, we'd be working with parents, with educators, with education workers, and with health experts to make sure those schools are safe, are safe and not be afraid to make the investments. I mean, all through this, Doug Ford has been trying to, to get through the pandemic on the cheap, except when it comes to helping his own friends out. Uh, but that's just not the way to deal with the pandemic. Uh, you have to be prepared to make the investments. Uh, so that's school and that's public health. Uh, we would take the lessons learned from uh, COVID thus far uh, and, uh, and, and address the shortcomings, for example, in healthcare, in long-term care, uh, in, uh, in hospital uh, capacity. Uh, I mean, these, some of these things we've been talking about for some time, uh, the hallway medicine crisis that uh, the Liberals left us with uh, and, uh, and Doug Ford was, you know, was making cuts to long-term care before COVID hit. So, you know, some of these things are things that have been long awaiting attention uh, and we would be rolling up our sleeves and addressing these uh, uh, these systems. Why? Because that's what Ontarians deserve. That's what seniors deserve. That's what kids deserve. That's what families deserve. And that's what makes our province a better place for people to uh, to build a great future. I think people might note uh, you are kind of in an election mode. Um, it certainly sounds <laughs> like it. Um, so I do want to talk about election politics. And I, and I want to phrase it this way. I mean, in 2018, Doug Ford is coming in off of um, like a terrible political picture in the, the PC party itself. I mean, he's most well known for, you know, being a city councilor while his brother was dealing with deep rooted personal issues as mayor. I mean, it, it was kind of like a, the perfect political opponent, but now he's got, by the time we get to next spring, he'll have four years as premier under a belt. There will be some people will say like, was he perfect? No, but you know, we didn't have, you know, people dying in the street from COVID and things like that. I mean, how are you looking at how you're situated as like a, a potential premier and as like the main rival of, of Doug Ford next summer? Like, how do you um, like get out ahead of him and, and make a case for you, yeah. that you should be the premier of Ontario? No, it's a great question, Adam. And I have to say, we, you know, we didn't see people, uh, as you put it, dying in the streets, but we saw 4,000 senior citizens lose their lives to COVID-19. Why? Because Doug Ford didn't want to spend the money. And that's not just Andrea Horvath saying that. And that's just not the official opposition saying that. The government's own commission uh, into long-term care unveiled, uh, you know, that uh, that in fact there was advice being given to the government on how to prevent the second wave from being worse than the first in, in uh, long-term care. And they got to the point, literally, and this is in the commission's report, they got to the point where they literally stopped providing that kind of advice because they just knew uh, they had gotten the sig signal very clearly uh, that, that the government didn't want to spend the money uh, to mm -hmm. make the improvements and to invest in, in saving uh, seniors' lives in long-term care. That's, again, that's documented. Um, and that's why we need the public inquiry as well. I just want to say, say that because we know that uh, what Doug Ford did was, uh, was really... Um, prevent documents from being uh, uh, provided in a timely fashion. Uh, and then the, at the very end of the process, the commission uh, received like 
hundreds of thousands of documents, and we call it a document dump. Uh, and then they asked for more time to review all of this material, and Doug Ford said no. So there was a reason why uh, Doug Ford, uh, you know, played with or or interfered with the uh, the work of the commission, and, and people deserve better than that. But you know, I, I've been um, I've been a leader for for some time here in Ontario, and I've watched as uh, as the Liberals, uh, you know, lost their way and uh, began to uh, worry more about politics and more about insiders uh, and uh, uh, and more uh, made more decisions that were not based on what uh, what's good for Ontario. But uh, I mean, they sold off Hydro One for goodness sakes. They left us with the hallway medicine uh, a crisis, uh, and that's that's you know that's why people I think were so disappointed at the end of the day. But then when Doug Ford came came um, into office. We didn't see um, things get better. In fact, we saw things get worse on every front. Uh, we see him rolling back. Uh, you know, he's he's on a crusade against the environment. Really, mm. he's on an anti-environment crusade. That's not where people are in Ontario when they talk to me uh, about the future. Uh, we've watched him cut health care and long-term care and mental health care at a time when we need to address these, uh, these concerns and issues. Uh, you know, I, I certainly... Um, I certainly had hoped to be able to form government last time around. As you know, you know, kind of technically, it's usually the official opposition that then uh, forms a government when people are unhappy with the government in office. Right. Uh, I, I think it's time that uh, that folks seriously have a look at the NDP and uh, have a look at uh, what we can do for our province. Uh, we have a lot of energy. We have some great MPPs. Uh, twice now in a row, election-wise, we've uh, elected uh, 50% of our caucus as women. Uh, we have significant diversity in, on our uh, caucus, not only in terms of you know cultural diversity and eth ethnic, ethnic diversity and uh, diversity of faith, uh, we have a number of young MPPs, uh, but we also represent urban centers, we represent suburbs, we represent rural Ontario, we represent northern Ontario, we represent eastern Ontario and southwestern Ontario. So our caucus as a team uh, really has a great deal of experience now. Uh, some of those members are fairly new. Some have been elected for some time now. Uh, we've got a really great mix, uh, and I think we could do a great job for the people of Ontario. Well, I represent ending my interviews on time. So, uh, Andrew Horvath, I, <laughs> thank you so much for all your time today. Absolutely. My pleasure, Adam. Thank you. All right. And once again, that was NDP leader Andrea Horvath. And uh, it was, boy, we're really getting some big names on the show. I, I wonder who we're going to have on the show next. Actually, I already know who we're going to have on the show next. And it's. Is it Doug Ford? <laughs> no, it's the mayor of our city. Oh, right. <laughs> He's on the show next week. Maybe we can get Cam to ask. Doug, you know, through the channels. Oh, maybe the political channels. If uh... I, I, I mean, Doug Ford was here last year, and he called Cam an absolute champ. So, maybe. Well, yeah, there's an in right there. So there's an in. Yeah, <laughs> go back and watch the video from Linamar. Anyway, uh, we do have to wrap up the show. Uh, we hope you liked it as always. You can stay connected to us at our website at opensourcesguelph.com. We're on Facebook at Open Sources Newswire, and we're on Twitter at OS underscore Guelph. You can listen to the show again by downloading it from our website every Monday at the Guelph Politicast channel on Podbean or through your favorite podcast app at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and the Spotify. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Adam A. Donaldson, and you can find my political site at guelphpolitico.ca. And I'm Scotty Hertz on Facebook, Scotty Hertz on Twitter, and for further station information beyond listening right here, 
you can check out CFRU.ca for scheduling information and all of that. And thank you for all your uh, messages. Uh, we read them all and we appreciate getting uh, any feedback that you would like to send us. Always even, the un- even the unfriendly kind, which sure. we do sometimes get. Because yeah. I, I know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Stay tuned for DJ Sounds Good to Be Here at the top of the hour on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. We will be back next Thursday at 5 p.m. for another edition of the show, and we will see you then.